0: In June 2020, the pandemic was in full force in North America. Many businesses had shut down, and while some were beginning to reopen, many would remain closed for months to come. 29-year-old Lauren DeMolo would go from a hardworking mom with two jobs to unemployed, But rather than sit back and wait for unemployment, she ventured out and began looking for another job right away. On the morning of June 19th, Lauren's live-in boyfriend, Gabriel Penna, would say goodbye to a sleeping Lauren and leave for work. There would be few clues as to Lauren's whereabouts that day, but Gabriel would come home that night to an empty apartment. Lauren would not be seen or heard from again. Where is Lauren Demolo? Welcome back to the Where Are They? podcast. This week's case featuring Lauren DiMolo has made some brief appearances in the media spotlight, so you may have heard of it before. But Lauren's whereabouts remain a mystery, and we need to keep this case from going cold. Before we jump in to Lauren's story, a few quick notes about the show. Proceeds from our online store will be benefiting the Find the Children Foundation. I'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to check out our merch, including t-shirts, hoodies, water bottles, coffee mugs, and other goodies. Our partnership this week also continues with the Hunt a Killer subscription box game and lets you solve crimes at home. Receive a new box of clues each month to pour over yourself or with others until you're able to catch the killer in this thrilling story from Hunt a Killer. This is perfect for game night with family or friends or even to do alone. Each season features a new storyline, and if you like analyzing clues as much as I do, this is right up your alley. From the website... Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episodes, or boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items, such as autopsy reports, witness statements, photographs, and more. You'll use these clues to solve the ongoing murder mystery. In the final episode, you'll be able to catch the killer. You can use our link in the show notes or... We will go ahead and put it up on our social media pages, and you can get a 20% discount. Supporting our partners helps us produce the weekly podcast show, so please go check them out when and if you are able. So now let's get back to the real reason we are here, Lauren DeMolo. Lauren Brittany DeMolo was a 29-year-old living in Cape Coral, Florida in 2020. Lauren has a five-year-old daughter, Michaela, and was living with her boyfriend, Gabriel Penna, who often went by the name Gabby. Lauren and Gabby had been together for a few years and were living in the Coronado Parkway apartments. Lauren is described as a Caucasian female, about five foot two and 120 pounds. She is said to be a girly girl through and through, nails always done, makeup done and loved the color pink. Lauren was born in Florida and grew up being raised by her father, Paul, in Maryland. She was very close to her younger sister, Cassie, who was just 13 months her junior. Growing up, they had little to no relationship with their mother, who resided in Florida. As adults, both Cassie and Lauren would end up moving back to Florida Cassie would not have much of a relationship with her mom still, but Lauren desperately wanted to try and reconnect and would move to Cape Coral, Florida, the same town as her mother. Lauren had been in a car accident in her teen years and had been prescribed Percocet. This would lead to an addiction that Lauren would battle for several years. This would also be the reason that Lauren would never obtain a driver's license herself. After Lauren gave birth to her daughter, she did work really hard to get cleaned up and back on the straight and narrow. She wanted to be there for Michaela, and according to everyone who knew them, Michaela was her whole world. Unfortunately, she would relapse and End up losing custody of Michaela when she was just three years old. Michaela would go on to live with her paternal grandmother. While Lauren had a history of substance abuse, everyone in her life was positive that she wanted to live a better life. It was a constant struggle for her, and she wanted to be a good mom to Michaela. She just couldn't quite win the battle. She began working two jobs. She worked at a Taco Bell and she worked as a server in a diner. This was not only to support herself, but also to keep herself busy and out of that lifestyle that she wanted out of so badly. However, something would happen and on June 1st of 2020, Lauren was admitted into a mental health facility It is believed she did so on her own accord. She was struggling and had sought out help. She would go on to be released on June 18, 2020, and immediately began searching for another job. She still had retained her Taco Bell job, but her diner had closed due to the pandemic, and Lauren wanted another second job to help get by. Surveillance footage will show her applying at a gas station on the evening of June 18th. Lauren's sister, Cassie, said she also spoke to Lauren that evening. Lauren was stressed out about finding another job with the pandemic going on, and Cassie tried to reassure her that it would be okay. Cassie had told her to call her back the next day, and she would help her get her information together, so she could possibly file for unemployment if needed. That was the last time Cassie would speak to her sister. On the morning of June 19, 2020, Lauren's boyfriend Gabriel, known to many again as just Gabby, said he woke up for work as usual around 6 o'clock a.m. and headed out to work. He said Lauren was sleeping, so he kissed her quietly and headed out the door. A maintenance worker at the Coronado apartment complex that she lived at would come forward and say he saw Lauren around 8.15 that morning. He said Lauren was asking him if he was aware of any other apartment complexes in the area that might be cheaper. She allegedly made a comment to him that she wanted to get out of the situation she was in. This man didn't know if she met financially or with regards to her relationship, but he did tell her he did not know of any apartments offhand, and their conversation was brief. This man also remembers what Lauren was wearing, but the description is vague. He said she was in a t-shirt and shorts. Lauren's family was confused by this conversation, She had a very close relationship with her sister, and she had never recalled her mentioning it was something that she was considering moving, and they weren't exactly aware of what might have been meant by the situation. Cassie admits she didn't know Gabby that well, and Lauren's father, Paul, said he had never met him before, and he just wasn't sure either. Her sister especially thought it was odd because, in fact, the month prior, she had borrowed some money from her to make sure she paid her rent on time as she wanted to continue to keep up on her expenses. Money had begun to get tight as she had lost one of her jobs, and her sister had lent her the money and Lauren would pay the rent. On the day of the 19th, Lauren's phone would then place a video call to Gabriel via Facebook. This took place around 10 o'clock a.m. The call would go unanswered, and Gabriel would later say he never saw a call come through. A neighbor would also later say that they saw Lauren walking home from the Four Freedom Park towards her apartment on Coronado Parkway late that morning. There would be no other confirmed activities or sightings of Lauren. Gabriel would come home later that evening, and Lauren was not there. Lauren didn't drive, she didn't have a car or even her license, and after her car accident, she was never interested in driving or getting her license. She preferred to just walk everywhere. Around 11 o'clock that night, Gabby would call Lauren's father, Paul, who lived in California with his wife, Tracy. Despite living across the country, Paul said he and Lauren were very close and he'd actually been planning a trip to visit her just before the pandemic swept into the country and shut travel down. Lauren was his firstborn and Paul was concerned, but he told Gabby to keep him informed and they would see if she would turn up or if they would hear from her. Paul again said he had never met Gabriel before and the call did seem a little out of the blue. However, he had hoped that she was just with friends or maybe even family. That call took place on that Friday night. On Saturday, Cassie asked Gabby to call her as soon as he got home from work that day and let her know if Lauren was there and okay. He told Cassie he was not going home and was instead going to stay at a friend's house. Cassie and Paul were even more alarmed now. Lauren had just been released from the hospital the day before, and Gabby didn't seem concerned about her in the slightest. The next day, Sunday, was Father's Day, and Paul knew at that time when he had not heard from Lauren that something was very wrong he begged Gabby to go back to their apartment. He was still apparently at his friend's house and to check on her and see if she is even there. They also called Lauren's mother's boyfriend who worked with Gabby at a flooring company and asked him to go also. It is said that Lauren's mother's boyfriend and Gabby were friends having worked together at this flooring company even longer than Lauren and Gabby had been together. After a few hours of not hearing back from the two men, Paul finally reached one of them, only to be told that Lauren was not there. Paul insisted that they call the police and file a missing persons report, and he was told that they had called the police, but no one had showed up. Paul called the police in Cape Coral himself and learned that a call had not been made to the police department after all. He immediately boarded a flight and flew into Fort Myers to search for his daughter. That same weekend, a park goer would find Lauren's black purse in the Four Freedoms Park on Tarpon Court Road. Her wallet with her ID and bank card were inside. The items were turned into the park rangers, but as Lauren wasn't officially a missing persons yet, the family would be unaware of this for a few days. This Four Freedoms Park was a place that Lauren often went to meditate and to walk. The park sits on Bimini Basin, one of the many lakes in the area. The park also has many picnic areas, a fenced playground, and a sunbathing beach. It's less than a half mile from where Lauren lived, and she enjoyed going there to meditate. This park also seems to be a fairly busy park, offering programs for children and adults and having a few shelter facilities available to rent for the public. Aside from the park area itself, the map shows that Bimini Basin is completely surrounded by homes and businesses, not necessarily a place where anyone would go to hide. It also seems that it would be an unlikely place to be attacked or robbed, but it's also hard to tell if there are any smaller, obscure areas within the park where something along those lines might take place, at least from analyzing the Google Maps. On that Sunday, with Dad Paul on his way to Florida from California, Gabriel would finally report Lauren missing to the police. Unfortunately, a clerical error within the department would lead to her case not being actually entered in the system, and a detective would not be assigned to the case until that Wednesday, June 24th. The family would not wait for help from the police, however, and they began their own search. Paul and two of his other daughters would go door-to-door, they would put signs up in the area, they left signs around the apartment complex, and they just talked to everyone they could find. When the case would be assigned, it would be given to Detective Jones with the Cape Coral Police Department and he would immediately begin interviewing everyone in and around Lauren's life. They would put out a plea to the public for anyone who might know something about Lauren's whereabouts, and they would receive hundreds of leads to follow up on, although none would lead to any clues as to Lauren's location. They would also thoroughly check through her cell phone, and nothing unusual was found, They checked her call history, her text messages, and her searches were all minimal and led to nothing suspicious. All of her search history on her phone was mostly just related to her job search and filling out applications. The limited activity on her phone was likely due to the fact that she had a very inexpensive phone that was not linked to a phone plan. She would have to go somewhere and use Wi-Fi, to make a call, or to do any type of research on the internet, as she was shown to be doing for a job. A possible break in the case would come a few weeks later on July 2nd. Her family, who had continued to walk around and check for Freedoms Park for any signs of Lauren, would find her burgundy red lace tank top discarded on the beach. The park in that area had been searched so much before that many believe the shirt showed up there within a day or two of them discovering it. Investigators were immediately called to the scene where they collected the shirt and conducted another search for evidence, including sifting through the sand in the area where the shirt was found. They would also seek out surveillance footage to see who might have put the shirt there. Again, they weren't convinced it had been there prior either. If detectives had found any surveillance footage, nothing has been made public as of yet. And an interesting fact, maybe a coincidence, while Sister Cassie was with Detective Jones gathering the shirt for evidence, they were standing on the beach when Cassie would look off to the walking path and see her mother's boyfriend, walking their dog. When he saw them he would kind of nonchalantly wave and say oh hi and continue walking. Cassie thought that was extremely weird. He didn't ask any questions. When he was so close to the family he knew they had been searching the park that day and the police presence should have been obvious that something might have been found. However this man walked right on by. When she first noticed him, she said to Detective Jones, isn't that? And Detective Jones responded with, oh, yes, we know him well, and he knows us. The shirt was later confirmed to be Lauren's in testing, but there was no other evidence found or discovered on her shirt. After months without Lauren, the family is convinced that she is no longer alive. Her family says she would never abandon her daughter, and a search of the area surveillance did find a video of her at a local speedway applying for a job and talking to an employee there. This was on June 18th, just one day before she would allegedly disappear. If she was applying for jobs, it seems highly unlikely that she was thinking or planning on leaving, at least on her own accord. Her family also believes that she was close enough with them, especially Sister Cassie and her father Paul, that she would have reached out to one of them by now. That fall, the family would suffer another devastating blow when on October 15th, Lauren's mother, Laura Decker, would pass away from complications from COVID-19. Four days later, Lauren's stepmom and Paul's wife, Tracy, would also pass away. Six months after Lauren went missing, the family held a walk for Lauren in which people from all over gathered to walk the same route Lauren would have walked from her apartment to the Four Freedoms Park. People dressed in pink in honor of Lauren's favorite color. Lauren's sister still struggles with missing Lauren every day, but wants to keep this case as active as possible and not let it become a cold case. She had this to say to Wink News. It's very hard. You know, you would think um, as the days go by and as the months go by now, that it would get easier and it doesn't. As the holidays come or even just as the days go by, it's just as hard today as it was six months ago. There are a few people in this story that might raise an eyebrow. First, Lauren's boyfriend, Gabriel. Second, the maintenance worker and possibly... A third interesting character, Lauren's mother's boyfriend. So let's talk about some interesting facts regarding this maintenance worker. First, he happened to be from Racine, Wisconsin, the same town in which Gabriel also once lived. Secondly, he did come forward with some information about speaking to Lauren on June 19th, being one of the only other people to allegedly see her on that day. And apparently this man was also a maintenance worker at Lauren's mother's apartment building just a couple blocks away. The day Lauren's mother was rushed to the hospital, he was apparently fixing a leak in her apartment. However, while he left a note on the counter in the kitchen, there was no work order issued for this leak. So is all of that a coincidence? No one knows for sure if this man and Gabby even knew each other. But he just happens to have lived in the same town several states away. He happens to remember a conversation with Lauren. And he just happens to work at both Lauren's apartment complex and her mother's. And why was he inside the apartment with no work order? Or perhaps there was a work order, but the record was lost there just seems to be quite a few weird coincidences involving this man. So now let's take a look at Gabriel. I was able to find his Facebook page through Lauren's page, but he has only 31 friends and it seems like he might have set the page up one day and quickly forgot about it. His profile picture does have a little girl in the photo with him that is not Lauren's daughter, so... I do know that he has children of his own, which court records do confirm also. What's kind of weird in this case is that in almost all missing persons cases, the significant other is most often the person of interest. However, Gabriel is never really mentioned as such, which does make me wonder if there is more out there that hasn't been said. Perhaps. Investigators were able to confirm Gabriel's whereabouts that entire day and maybe confirm that Lauren did indeed make that video call from the apartment to Gabriel, thus eliminating him as a suspect? Or are they being very tight lipped because they are actually investigating him behind the scenes? Since there isn't much available through the media, I did do some digging on my own to see what we can learn about Gabriel Penna. He was, in fact, married to a woman named Jessica. I'm going to leave out last names, but all of this information was obtained through public records. He was married to this woman, Jessica, and he filed for a disillusion back in 2001, It seemed like a lengthy process for some reason, but it was granted in 2002. There was a minor child involved, and in 2020, the minor child became emancipated. In 2012, there was another dissolution filed, this time with a woman named Nancy, again involving a child as a child support order was filed along with it. However, this case would be dismissed. The interesting case comes up on June 16, 2014, when Gabriel is charged with misdemeanor domestic violence. He did bond out after spending a few days in jail with a bond of $3,500. Here is what the arrest report states. On the 15th of June, 2014, approximately 1,500 hours, an officer was dispatched to Cape Coral Parkway Circle K in Lee County, Florida. According to Nancy, her husband, Gabriel Penna, and her baby's father started a confrontation with her about money. Nancy stated she was holding her baby and Penna started to run towards her and attempted to pull the baby out of her arms while pulling Nancy's hair also. Nancy started to protect the baby, so she punched him to get him off of her, but he continued to come at her until he was pulled away by some other customers. When contact was made with Penna, he initially stated to the officer, take me to jail. Penna then placed the blame on Nancy, but upon reviewing the surveillance, it is clear that Gabriel was the aggressor and Nancy was trying to push him off of her. So that is the end of the report. And this case was ultimately closed a few weeks later. Although no details are provided, it's likely due to Nancy refusing to press charges. So this doesn't mean that six years later he would be responsible for another girlfriend's disappearance. But anytime we're looking at unsolved cases, I do think it's important to look at everything, especially past behavior of their significant other. Also, I know Gabriel spent time in many other places, and I did search Racine County, Wisconsin, but their records need to be pulled in person. I wasn't able to get any online records from there, and the only records I did find were from Lee County, Florida, not knowing all the other jurisdictions he may have been in. There could be other things out there that we don't know about. Gabriel hasn't been too active in the public eye, although Lauren's family has been front and center. I wanted to take a close look at the map of the area before we talk about the questions that I'm sure you have. I know I have a few. So Google Quick Facts describes Cape Coral, which is located just south of Fort Myers, Florida, as a city in southwest Florida known for its many canals, home to manatees, Serenia Vista Park has kayak routes to Matlacha Pass Aquatic Preserve, where birds wade amid mangroves. Cape Coral Historical Society and Museum traces the planning of the city. Yacht Club Community Park has a beach and a pier on the Caloosahatchee River. To the north, Four Mile Cove Ecological Preserve attracts birds of all species. So we are on the Gulf Coast of Florida with tons of nature preserves and waterways just minutes from Fort Myers. Interestingly, Cape Coral is known for its over 400 miles of canals, often being called a waterfront wonderland. There are more miles of canals here than anywhere else in the world. And these canals ultimately lead out to the Gulf of Mexico or the Calusahachi River. Cape Coral itself is pretty significant in size, having just over 180,000 permanent residents. It's a big place, lots of people and lots of water. I wasn't able to verify how long she had been in the Cape Coral, Fort Myers area, And according to her social media, she also lived at some point in West Palm Beach, as well as Staten Island, New York. And as a reminder, make sure you're following us on our YouTube channel. When we put these cases up there in video format, we are able to show the maps and the images we talk about and the surveillance footage that we have also. So first, we do have a lot of water in the area, more water than we do land. The Kalusahachi River, and I apologize if I am pronouncing that incorrectly, we have the Kalusahatchee River, over 400 miles of canals and just a few miles from a couple different large nature preserves. We're also about 0.3 miles from Lauren's apartment to Bimini Basin Lake, which is where her purse and her shirt would eventually be found. In and around all of this water are homes, hotels, and businesses. It's a very built-up area, very populated, a lot of traffic. If foul play was involved, it would be hard to not be seen moving a body. However, there is no shortage of waterways that could possibly be searched. So let's talk about some questions. First, how did her purse get to the park? Did Lauren take it there? Some theorize that she may have walked to the park as she was maybe seen walking back to her apartment later, and then she disappeared sometime after that. Or did she never make it to the park at all that day, and the purse was possibly staged there? Another question that I have, and I tried to find out anything at all about this, is were there any water searches conducted in and around Bimini Basin, in and around her apartment? I get that there's a lot of water that could be searched and could be overwhelming, but we do have the area of Bimini Basin pinpointed, Was there any searches conducted in the water itself? Question number three, why was the shirt found a couple weeks later in areas that were already searched? Was it planted there to be found? It was very well known to the public and to family that they were searching and looking in that park in that area. Was it put there with the intention that it would be found to maybe throw investigators off the track? Or was the shirt perhaps there all along and just had been hidden and maybe due to weather or winds or had it been buried in the sand and somehow made its way up to the surface? Is the reason it's there not related to someone planting it? And why was the mother's boyfriend there that day? Was it just a coincidence that he was out walking his dog According to Lauren's sister, he knew they were going to be searching the park that day. And yet he didn't really acknowledge them when he saw them or even stop and talk or ask any questions as to what was going on. Finding Lauren's shirt was a pretty big development in the case. And yet he just nodded his head and walked on by. My last question is... Can we, with 100% certainty, say that Lauren's call made to Gabriel that morning came from the apartment and went to Gabriel, whose location was not at the apartment? Meaning, are we able to know where Gabriel's phone was when that call came in, even though he didn't answer it? Now, there are a few other points to bring up regarding the investigation and the search for Lauren. After the shirt was found on the beach area of Four Freedoms Park, the investigators brought in search dogs, and these dogs were cadaver dogs, different from your bloodhound type of search dogs that follow someone's scent. And according to Sister Cassie, these cadaver dogs are trained to search for a particular scent, and they did hit on a work van, that belonged to Lauren's mother's boyfriend. And remember, Gabriel worked with him also at this flooring company. The dog also allegedly hit on a scent in the mother's apartment. Cadaver dogs are trained, again, to pick up on a particular scent that is caused during human decomposition, They can tell this scent, but remember, they can't distinguish that scent person to person. There's no way to know that that could have belonged to Lauren or possibly someone else. There are also a few other scents that can trick a cadaver dog, and they can possibly hit on it mistakenly. So authorities did seize the van and after a thorough search, no evidence was found, and the van ended up being returned. A few days after it was returned, however, the van was in an accident and ended up being sent to the scrapyard. Lauren's mother's apartment was also searched, but nothing of consequence would be found there either. A week or so after the van was scrapped, Gabby and Lauren's mother's boyfriend's boss committed suicide. Likely completely unrelated, and we have no idea the circumstances revolving around this, but yet another odd tragedy associated with this case, even if indirectly. So this is a really tough case. Lots of interconnecting people, lots of strange coincidences, and it brings up the theories in this case. Theory number one, Lauren took off on her own. She did have a history of mental illness, and she was stressed out. A result partly from maybe being in a bad situation at home, losing her job due to the pandemic, and the worries of finding another job. Maybe she just had enough and had to leave. However, to not contact her sister or father, whom she was really close to, does seem unlikely. Theory number two, suicide. Again, her mental health in recent weeks wasn't good, although when she was released just a day before she disappeared, the medical facility had determined that she was well enough to be on her own, meaning they did not find her to be a risk to herself or to others. And why look for a job if you might be planning something? Generally, people contemplating taking their own life are not planning their future at the same time. This is a difficult theory for me to grasp with regards to Lauren's case. So theory number three, foul play at the hands of a stranger. Did she walk to the park like normal that morning to meditate, which could be the reason she left her phone behind and maybe something happened to her. Maybe something at the park, she was attacked or mugged, or maybe something happened on her walk to and from the park, or perhaps she had gone somewhere else completely. Theory number four, foul play at the hands of someone she knew. Obviously, there are some questionable characters in her life and some very suspicious things going on here, mostly with Gabriel, the mother's boyfriend, and maybe even the maintenance worker. Lauren's sister, Cassie, points out that while she is described as going missing on June 19th, it was actually the 18th that she spoke to her last and that we last have her on surveillance at the gas station. The only ones who can confirm seeing her on the 19th was Gabby, was the maintenance man, and there was one other possible sighting of someone in the area thinking they saw her walking by their house. Police did check any surveillance footage that there may have been between the apartment and the park, and Lauren is not seen anywhere. So, it is possible that someone thought they saw Lauren, but they were mistaken. Everyone has their thoughts on this case, but we don't have any concrete evidence pointing to any one of these theories. What do you think happened to Lauren DiMolo? Do you believe one of these theories is the likely answer to her whereabouts? Or do you have another theory? It's been almost one year without Lauren, and her family still searches for her daily. They continue to raise money to keep searching, and we know this is not yet considered a cold case. Please continue to share Lauren's story and keep her name in the spotlight. Lauren is around 5 foot 2 inches tall, tall weighs around 120 pounds and was possibly wearing a t-shirt and shorts when she was last seen in June of 2020. She would be 30 years old today. She has blonde hair and several tattoos including a large tattoo on the side of her body that reads Namaste, rosary beads on her ankle, a symbol on her wrist, and the symbol NY on her pelvis. If you have any information as to the whereabouts of Lauren DiMolo, please call Cape Coral Police at 239-574-3223. You can also submit an anonymous tip at www.capecops.com forward slash tips, or call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS. You can reference case number 20-011-323. Remember to make sure you are following us on social media. We do keep a close eye on all of the cases that we cover for updates, and we will share them when we receive any. If you have a recommendation for a case that you'd like to see covered, send me an email at canwefindthem@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And remember, go watch the video of two-year-old Tika Lewis on our YouTube channel and leave a comment below her video. We will announce a winner on tomorrow's bonus episode. A winner will be selected at random from the comments. Commenting helps her video get more exposure to others and will help us spread the word of her disappearance. Lastly, a huge thank you again to Hunt a Killer for partnering with us on this video. Check the show notes or our Facebook page for a discount link, and go get your very own case to solve. I believe the link is valid through the end of May and offers a 20% discount. If you join in on the fun with us, let us know. Just don't share any clues that you may have solved so others can figure it out on their own. Thank you for tuning into this episode and listening to Lauren Demolo's story. Someone definitely knows something. Share, share, share her case and her name. We will be back again with a bonus episode very soon and our regularly scheduled Missing Persons episode next Wednesday. Until then, stay safe and hug your loved ones.